Maybe at some point in your life, you found a way to bend the rules. A shortcut. A perfect little loophole. And when you find that loophole, it can be exciting. But it can also present a moral dilemma. Like, is it okay to bend that rule? How far is too far? Loopholes can be very big, like a corporation dodging taxes. But they can also be very small. Like, the first loophole I ever discovered was at Chuck E. Cheese. For me and my sister, Chuck E. Cheese was a greasy dreamland. We'd order pizza, play a bunch of arcade games, and rack up tickets for prizes. But inevitably, after about an hour, we'd run out of tokens, which meant no more games. Our parents were only willing to spend so much. But then one day, I was playing in the ball pit, and I heard some noise at the bottom. I reached down, and that's when I felt it. A whole pile of tokens must have fallen out of some kid's pocket. Technically, I should have taken them to the front desk, but let's be real, whoever dropped them probably didn't even realize or had left. So I dove back in and found another token, then another, then another. The whole bottom was covered in tokens. The loophole was foolproof. Every time I went to Chuck E. Cheese, I'd go straight to the ball pit and find a whole heap of free tokens. There are loopholes like mine that you stumble on, and then sometimes you actively seek them out. Like this guy who couldn't afford internet just after he graduated college. And so one day, he was scrolling through Wi-Fi networks in his building, looking for an open one. And I noticed that one of them was listed as Gandalf, all lowercase. And without really taking much time to, to think about it, I, I opened Gandalf up, and when it prompted me for the password, I put in all lowercase, no spaces, you shall not pass, and was immediately surfing the web. He says he got three months of free internet before the neighbors changed the password. And then there are loopholes you piece together by using existing rules in ways they were not intended. Like this guy who hacked his local bar a few summers ago. He saw the day special was $2 liquor shots, looked down at the $6 vodka tonic he'd been drinking, and asked the bartender, how much would you charge me for tonic water? To which she replied, nothing. And I said, well, could you please give me a $2 shot of your house vodka and a free glass of tonic water? He says, while you're at it, do you mind combining them? So, uh, you know, I realized I'm, I'm now going to get $2 vodka tonics, and I guess, I, I, you know, I was a trailblazer. Or there are loopholes that feel somewhat shady, almost like cheating. Like, there's this guy who learned how to game the time clock at his Kmart job. His time clock was programmed in 15-minute increments. He realized if he clocked in just a few minutes early and clocked out just a few minutes late, he could actually get paid for an extra 30 minutes, even though he'd only worked about half of that. Oh, it felt great, you know. It's, it was, you know maybe 50 extra bucks, give or take, every paycheck. Um, so for almost two years, I did that every day. He figures he made an extra 3,400 bucks from this altogether. My grandfather also worked at that store, so he told me about it before I started. And so I just knew to do it on day one. A loophole legacy. I'm Eddie Mejres, and welcome to This is Uncomfortable, a show for Marketplace about life and how money messes with it. The thing about loopholes is that they can either spark admiration or judgment. There can be a fine line between what some people might consider a clever hack or even a justified stand against the man and what others might see as just straight up unethical. This week, we're going to tell you about an enormous loophole that walks that line. 
What if I told you this one guy walked away from his mountain of debt, never plans to pay it back, and may get away with it? That's what today's story is about. A man who goes to extreme lengths for a $200,000 loophole. In 2002, this kid from Chicago felt like he was on top of the world. We'll call him Anthony. When he graduated from high school, a wireless company he'd been working for offered him a promotion in Milwaukee. It was a well-paid job, and he was only 18. It's sort of been being, being handled like a golden ticket. Like, here's a golden ticket to a whole future you can create. His parents told him, you should really go to college. And he thought about it, even filled out the forms for student loans. But in the end, he sided with the paycheck. Three months afterwards, I was earning more than my mother. And a year and a half later, I was earning more than my father. By the time he was 21, Anthony was well into six figures in the wireless industry. And by the time he was 23, he was overseeing the entire Midwest region, flying between Minneapolis and Chicago, setting up new offices and hiring people. He could afford a loft apartment with 18-foot ceilings, an Acura with heated seats, expensive cocktails and tasting menus. He loved his life. And he loved capitalism. Oh my God, I was I was the number one advocate, evangelist, mm. gung-ho, you know, fist-pumping, capitalist. I remember a friend of mine was like, Johnny Corporate, he'd call me Johnny Corporate. Wow. And I, I didn't like it, but honestly, I kind of did like it. I'm like, I am Johnny Corporate. So you're living this, like, luxurious lifestyle, making good money, you're young, and then what happens? 2008 happened. In 2008, the economy slid into a recession. Millions of Americans were suddenly forced to consider terrible options. They were wiping through savings, competing for much lower-paying work, selling their homes. Anthony started hearing rumors that his company was bleeding money. That summer, he got a call from the VP. The company was broke. His boss said, you have to let your team go, all 45 of them. A few weeks later, Anthony sat down at his office and invited those team members to one big conference call. He felt sick to his stomach. So I let uh, 45 people go at once. Wow. Oh, I felt like the worst. Uh, I had hired a lot of them personally. It was really devastating to just so impersonally, so coldly be like, and you're all fired. There was... No goodbyes, no, you know, nice exits. is just a cold, brutal capitalism taking the, the hammer down. Anthony held on to his own job for three more days. Then he was let go, too. It was really just a feeling for me of just this dog-eat-dog, uh, dog and, and I had just been eaten. And uh, all these folks had, had just been eaten. Do you, do you remember more or less how much you'd saved at that point when you lost your job? My severance. Uh, oh, you only had your severance? I was, I only had my severance. Just, uh, you know, I, I, I'd make, you know, ten or $15,000 a month and I'd spend it. Mm. I spent nearly every cent that I made because I thought it would never end. It all happened so quickly. Anthony was only 23. He'd never quite learned how to manage money. And growing up, his family didn't ever really talk about it. His parents kept insisting he go to college And finally, he caved. 
The recession had decimated the job market for now, so he figured he might as well get a degree in the meantime so he could become more competitive. And he was in good company. In the aftermath of the recession, college enrollment shot up 16%. Congress even raised the amount of money students could borrow. So in 2009, Anthony took out his first federal student loans, about $18,000 worth. It'd be one of his first moves down a very slippery slope. He enrolled at the University of Phoenix, one of those for-profit online schools that later came under fire for predatory lending practices. Just like that, he became one of millions of Americans with student debt. And how were you thinking of loans at that time? It was always sort of almost imaginary to me. Uh, I, I actually had this this wild idea that I'm like, well, if I'm going to be a student and I'm going to take out student loans, then I might as well just be a perpetual student so I don't ever actually have to pay the loans. Because mm. I, I, had, I had understood that if I was always in school, the loans were always deferred. It seemed as though Anthony had found his first loophole, become a forever student. The plan was to still have a job so he could earn money, but to also always be enrolled in some online class so he could keep deferring his loans indefinitely. And with better degrees, he figured he'd get better jobs and be able to catch up. By the way, one expert we talked with said, in theory, this plan can work, but it's a bit impractical. Some schools won't accept perpetual students. Meanwhile, things were only getting worse for almost everyone in the U.S. By 2010, student loan debts surpassed credit card debt for the very first time. And Anthony was swimming in both kinds of debt. He started putting everything on a credit card, which I guess you could say it's his own everyday kind of loophole. For a little while, I had an American Express card, and I charged the living bejesus out of that thing. He had a total of 10 credit cards that he'd taken out over the years, and now he was maxing them out. He was desperately trying to keep up his former lifestyle, a life that was now way beyond his means. You know, I, I tried to just sort of keep a, a semblance of who I, who I thought I was. Anthony had gotten rich young, and now he was broke young. And while most of us have at least some span of time where we're climbing the ladder, experiencing setbacks, getting back on the ladder again, Anthony's initial success was fast and linear and came without much struggle. By his own admission, he'd come to believe that's how it goes. You work hard, you succeed. That is how the system works. Did you ever expect to be making such nice money so young? You know, to be honest, it sort of, it sort of seemed to be in play for me. I could see sort of the direction I was going. And, uh, you know, I, I saw a, a, a straight-up trajectory, and um, it all kind of made sense to me. And that idea that it was his right to succeed and succeed and succeed, it blinded him. He figured his path back to Johnny Corporate was just a matter of time. You know, I, I, had, I, I had this terribly privileged idea that it was taken from me, that it was my right to have all these things. And, and I, I had reached it. I, you know, I, I didn't want to think that I had peaked at 23. You know, and I, I carried this chip on my shoulder. You know, I had this when it was taken from me. Mm. And, you know, it, it was tough. Slowly but surely, it started to become clear to him that his idea that the system would forever work in his favor was a mirage. That his early success was probably more luck than, you know, how things work. The reality check was a painful one. While he was still enrolled in online classes, he put out dozens upon dozens of job applications. 
And I went from from applying to like, you know, VP level stuff to, you know, uh, director and then director. I went down to like, uh, you know, just manager and then manager. I finally just was like, OK, I can't get at that. Then I'll just go to like a regular employee. Anthony finally found a job at a call center, which earned him about 12 or 13 bucks an hour. Yeah, I took like a hundred thousand dollar pay cut. As his debt grew, he got more and more behind on rent and eventually got evicted. Not long after that, he was at his new place when the postal carrier arrived with a certified letter and told him he needed to sign for it. I just kind of did it as a reflex. And uh, I remember coming back in and I, I, I remember looking at who it was from and it was something LLP. Mm. And I knew that meant an attorney. And I'm like, oh man, wait, why do I have something from an attorney? Anthony opened it. It was a summons from one of his creditors who'd filed suit against him. And since he'd signed the letter, he now had to show up to court. It was something like $2,600 or, or something. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I just couldn't believe it. And, and I'm like, I have to go to court for this? There was no way Anthony could cover the $2,600. He started to freak out. He knew if one collector was coming after him, soon more and more would follow. He'd come face to face with the consequences of his long string of writing loopholes and decided to turn to yet another loophole, a painful one that's actually baked into our legal system that would allow him to wipe out some of his debts. He decided to declare bankruptcy. What was it like filing for bankruptcy? There's the whole thing that I grew up with where I've now labeled a failure. Uh, clearly, I failed, and I have to file bankruptcy, and only failures file bankruptcy. It was tough. It was really tough. But the more he thought about it, the more he started to question the system itself. Like, lots of powerful people use bankruptcy regularly as a strategic move. The ex-president, for example, filed for business bankruptcies six times. In fact, bankruptcy is literally in the U.S. Constitution. They are in Article One a way around the system built directly into the system. And it's, it's just a tool in a toolbox as opposed to a, a, a scarlet letter. Mm-hmm. And this was, this was early stages of, a, of an awakening, I'd say, to, to understand more about kind of how the world works. And it's not just bankruptcies. The rich also find legal loopholes to walk away from taxes. Like Jeff Bezos paid $0 in federal income tax in 2007, and then again in 2011. Anthony figured if powerful folks could play by different rules, why couldn't he? Over the next few years, he'd dwell on that idea, as he got married and kept struggling to find better work. The debt cycle just kept going. New credit cards, minimum payments. Sometimes he and his wife would even split transactions on multiple cards. And then one day, in 2017, Anthony's wife got home late from work. She said she'd come across this online 401k calculator, which would tell them how long it'd take before they have enough money to retire. They sat down together in the kitchen and entered a bunch of information in rows. How much debt they were in, how much money they made, how much they saved, did they have kids... And it shows like year by year in these 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 turning points, like, oh, you turn 60, oh, you turn 70. Mm-hmm. And it kind of gave like a, a little uh, a map of, of how, how much money we would have and how much compared to how much we would need. Anthony studied the results. Their break-even point, the point at which they'd supposedly have enough money to retire, was 100 years. 100 years. It was, it was paralyzing, really, to, to mm. just, to, to be pinned back like that and go, well, 
you're going to have to keep doing this for a century. It was the last gasp of his belief in some kind of American dream that had been fed to him his whole life. My boomer parents and, and the older family around me all just talked about, you know, the, the un- unending progress. We're, we're here now and we're better tomorrow. And I look at that, I'm like, I'm not better tomorrow. I'm not, I'm not better for more than 100 years. At this point, Anthony was nearly $200,000 in debt between student loans, credit cards, and car payments. He felt defeated and overwhelmed at the thought of ever being able to dig himself out of this hole. And it's moments like this, moments of just sheer desperation, where we dream up some of the most extreme solutions to our problems. It's the place where mega loopholes are born. One evening, not long after they'd done the calculator, Anthony and his wife were in the living room of their house when a wild idea occurred to him, a way to leave their debts behind for good. He turned to his wife and said, so this is crazy, but... Like, why don't we just leave the country? What was your wife's reaction? She said, yes, let's do it. Like right away? Like right away. After the break, Anthony's big that loophole. A decade after taking a hit from the 2008 recession, Anthony and his wife hadn't recovered. They were buried in almost $200,000 of debt, behind on payments with no hope in sight of ever retiring. So in 2017, they were weighing a radical exit strategy to ditch their debt. What if they just left, moved abroad somewhere, and forgot about their creditors? After all, a poor credit score in the U.S. doesn't affect you in the rest of the world. And if creditors can't reach you, there's not much they can do to force you to pay up. We really looked at moving abroad as our chance to get out of the whole system. It could walk away from, uh, from all these things with essentially no recourse. Leaving the country would be the loophole to end all loopholes. And the only way to pull it off would be to commit to it 100%, to leave and never move back. Anthony and his wife got to work. They bought travel books, looked online at places where they could live, maybe Vietnam or Cambodia where they'd honeymooned. They talked about it constantly. Like, where where would we work or where would we live or like what what would we eat or how would we eat? Mm. Um, and and was this 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 talk of like an idyllic life and yeah. a, a, a peaceful life and and one where we don't have to worry so much about the endless fight just to get our needs met? The more they thought about this, the more excited they got. But when they talked about their plan with family and friends, well, they were not as excited. Definitely we lost friends. Um, Mm. A lot of our family was sort of estranged to begin with, and it sort of drove it a little bit further. Um, You know, we were really called crazy. Anthony says he would try to explain the ways he felt screwed by the system. He felt surely he and his wife couldn't be alone. There had to be other people in his orbit who also felt like this. But if there were, nobody was willing to name it. Oh, my God. We were entitled lazy millennials. Mm -hmm. Or, Or we just didn't want to work hard. We wanted to run away from our problems. You're just not working hard enough. Clearly, you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and you're just not doing that. Mm. We were called conspiracy theorists, snowflakes, whiners. I remember one person told me, 
uh, you just read too much negative news. It's, it's really not that bad out there. After a lot of research and thought, they decided their runaway destination would be Phnom Penh in Cambodia. It took about a year and a half to get everything ready. Anthony researched how to open up new foreign bank accounts. And at that point, he'd started a real estate business with his friend, which he now made fully remote. By the end of 2019, everything was ready. On their final morning in the U.S., Anthony remembers going to his mailbox one last time. I'm like, oh, what's this from uh, Department of Education? Hmm. And it was a collection notice. And the, and the total at the time was 108, it was like 108, 640. Whoa. And I laughed and I showed my wife, I'm like, look at this, they're never going to get it. He tucked away the collection notice, about $108,000, as a final souvenir from his time in America. He loaded up three suitcases, created their two pit bulls, and boarded a one-way flight to Cambodia. Anthony and his wife have been living there now for about a year and a half. And of course, there are times when it feels lonely. The language barrier can be tough to manage. But as Americans earning an American wage, life for them there feels a lot less stressful. They're saving money for the first time in their relationship, and they're paying $400 a month on rent for a three-story apartment. Anthony's wife is taking a break from work right now, and he's been managing his business remotely just fine. And as far as their debt, they haven't made a single payment since they left. So have loan collectors been in touch with you at all? They weren't getting in touch with me. They're just leaving voicemails on a, a voicemail service. How would you feel like hearing those uh, those voicemails? Were you nervous? No, not at all. There's there's really nothing these folks can do. Mm. Um, you you, want, you can't find me. When we first started reporting this story, we were convinced there had to be some major risk to this ploy. But the more we looked into it, the more it became clear that Anthony is probably going to get away with it. We spoke with experts that say, yeah, it is very hard for creditors to enforce outstanding payments if they can't actually reach you. To sue you, a lender would have to serve you a court summons. And if Anthony got a summons and didn't show up to court, a judge could in theory issue a warrant for his arrest. But again, this all comes back to whether they can even find him. Some credit card companies do have an international presence, but the likelihood of going to the trouble and expense of serving someone like Anthony is very low. If you work for an American company and don't pay your federal student loan debts, the government can garnish your wages, even if you're living abroad. But since Anthony owns his own business, he sets it up in a way where he doesn't have to report a salary. There's no paycheck to, to pull from. There's no nothing. Huh. My, my system isn't structured that way. I'm a corporation. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, we, we talked before about corporations play by different rules. So I play by the rules of a corporation. If Anthony wanted to visit the U.S., he technically could. But if he were to settle here again, all of his problems, and a lot worse, could come rushing back. Listening to Anthony, I found myself struggling with different conflicting ideas. A lot of big loopholes like this are premised on the idea that there's a system that's unfair or unethical. So anything you do to game that system is justified. It's no secret that, yeah, capitalism can and does harm the little guy. And companies do exploit people. On the other hand, it's fair to say that, generally speaking, and certainly in Anthony's case, you don't just stumble onto $200,000 of debt. 
2008 did throw him a huge financial curveball, as it did with many, many people. But at some point between 2008 and now, he also made a lot of his own choices. How would you respond to people who would say that, like, you know, it's convenient to say that the system's a scam after you've shirked financial responsibilities? Um, I, I kind of look at it very objectively. And mm-hmm. we live in an ecosystem of complex systems. And eventually, if looked at long enough, all systems can be gamed. All systems can be gamed. Mm-hmm. And there's folks that do it. There's companies that do it. There's countries that do it. I'm just kind of doing the long tradition of of seeing complex systems and, and manipulating them in ways that can sometimes get me positive outcomes. I don't have a lot of feeling in it. It's it's not about right or wrong. It's just a complex system. And there's ways in which to manipulate it. And there's ways in which to, you know, slide it in my favor. And why not do that? The line that Anthony keeps coming back to is that if powerful people can play by different rules, why can't I? And of course, he's not the only one who feels like this. Nobody tracks how many American expats are living abroad to dodge their debt. But if you look online, you'll find plenty of forums and posts from people who are considering it and people who are doing it. And maybe that shouldn't surprise us. Student debt has doubled in the last decade, and millennials are much less likely to own homes than their parents did at the same age and more likely to tap into their retirement to tackle their debts. And of course, it has to be said that most of us aren't in the position Anthony was in. A lot of us have ties to family and friends that make it kind of impossible to just up and leave. And while most of the world is a welcoming place for a white, straight American guy, the same can't be said for everyone. Anthony's decision can be polarizing, and I think that's because most of us have internalized these ideas of responsibility and fairness when it comes to money. We've endured the pain of paying back our debts, so it can feel maddening to know that someone on the other side of the world is getting away with ditching his own, even if we fully understand that the system itself is far from fair. But I guess that's the thing about loopholes. What one person accepts as just a flaw in the system, another sees as an opportunity. All right, that is all for this week's show. Also, I should say that we are nearing the end of our season. Next week's episode will be the last one before we're back later this year. In the meantime, I want to keep plugging our newsletter. If you haven't signed up for it yet and you want more This Is Uncomfortable content, definitely check it out. Every Friday, you'll get a note from me in your inbox, plus some recommendations on things to read and listen to from the team. You can sign up for that at marketplace.org slash comfort. This is Uncomfortable is me, Rima Khreis, Megan Dietry, Haley Hirschman, Peter Balanon-Rosen, and Camila Kerwin. Camila Kerwin lead produced this episode. Our intern is Serena Chow. Our editor is Karen Duffin. Tony Wagner is our digital producer. Scoring and audio engineering by Charlton Thorpe. Sitar Nieves is the executive director of On Demand. Special thanks this week to student loan expert Mark Kandrowitz. And our theme music is by Wonderly. All right. I'll catch y'all next week. <laughs>